Acts chapter number 13. We will read from verse, starting in verse number 4. Last time we were in Acts, we saw the, uh, the missionary church. Uh, first, I guess what we might call the proper, first proper missionary church uh, sends out its, its first, first two proper missionaries. And uh, so that's verses 1 through 3. And so what we're going to read about uh, tonight is the first place that they went, which is the island of Crete. Uh, I'm sorry, Cyprus, not Crete. I got that confused. All right, the island of Cyprus. All right, chapter 13, verse number 4. The Bible says, So they, Paul and Barnabas that is, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had also John to their minister. And when they had gone through uh, the, the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so uh, is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season." And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about some seeking to he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. All right, let's pray together once again. Our Father, thank you for uh, for your word once again. Thank you for this uh, record that you've given to us about their uh, the the missionary's trip to Cyprus. Lord, we thank you for your church being able to be here. And, of course, we pray for those, especially uh, that can't be with us because they're ill, especially Sister uh, Pam Hardin and uh, Joseph and Pam and Seth and, uh, and Nathaniel and Robert. And, Lord, we pray for them, that you'd give them a quick healing. We pray as well for your blessing and grace upon Brother and Sister Muxlow uh, even now. And uh, please protect them and their health. And uh, we also pray for... Um, uh, others that, that aren't feeling well, and uh, we pray that your blessing would be upon them and you'd give them a quick recovery. And uh, Lord, we just ask you to bless our, our evening tonight as we look in your word. I pray you'd help your people uh, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, Barnabas and, and Saul, as, as they are referred to together at this point, notice verse 9 is the last time that you will find Saul, or also called Paul, in verse 9, it mentions that. It's the last time you'll find him, find him, find him in, in the present referred to as Saul. Now, you'll find him later giving his testimony, referring to how Jesus called out to him, Saul. Saul. What's interesting about this, though, is, is, is that Saul, because he was not only a Jew, 
That is, he was of the stock of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he was a pure-blooded Jew down, down through his family. His father was, a, was a, a pure-blooded Jew. His father was a Pharisee. And so Saul was his Hebrew name, right? He was his Hebrew name. That's a Hebrew word. But Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, was his, was his uh, Greek name. Okay, so that would, be, that would be what he would be called in Greek. And what's interesting is as the gospel goes from the Jews to the Gentiles, so Paul's name changes. It goes from Saul to Paul. And in fact, what we see this man here named Sergius Paulus, the, the name Paulus is the same name as Paul. It's just this, in, in, in Greek, it's the same word, exactly. It's just that in, our, in the English Bible, of course, we, uh, the uh, translators kept the common English names. And so that's why you, that's why you have that. But, uh, but their name is actually the same name. So it's an interesting little fact here. And so they go to their first place, and I want to do a brief overview of some, uh, I guess, what I might call some interesting details about their, uh, their trip. Their first place that they went was the island of Cyprus. Give it just a second. The first place they went was the island of Cyprus. <clears throat> this is an overview of, of Paul's first missionary journey. You probably have in your Bible a, a map like this that shows Paul's missionary journey. So what you're looking at here, just in case anyone's kind of unfamiliar with it, is down here you have Israel, which is where you can see Jerusalem here. This is North Africa. And as you go up, this is where Antioch is in Syria. That's what we call Antioch in Syria. It's, it's in what we now call Syria. And then uh, the missionary journeys, this whole area is like the size of a U.S. state, basically. We're not talking about a very large area here as far as we're not. Their, their first missionary journey was, you know, would, would probably be contained within, definitely within the state of Texas, for sure. But this is, this, this whole missionary journey uh, was in this area right here. Now, their missionary journey went into basically two areas. The first one was Cyprus, which we'll read about tonight. And the second one was in Asia, what is called Asia Minor. Now, when you read in the Bible and you see the word Asia, you think China, you think Mongolia, you think Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. That's not what the Bible is referring to when it says Asia. It's referring to what we call Turkey, all right? This whole section here is Turkey. And Brother Stewart has spent time in this. Have you been to Turkey? So he spent time in all these places. He's been to some of these uh, sites as well. And then over here, across the Aegean Sea, you have, the, uh, you have Greece, right? So, uh, and Paul spent time in all these places until eventually he went to Rome, which is in Italy on this side on, off the map. Okay, now here's what I want you to understand. This, what we'll read about tonight is that the missionary, or, or what we'll read about later, is that the missionary journey after they leave Cyprus goes into this area. This is all Roman provinces, okay, at this time. In other words, sections, you, you could say counties or states that were uh, governed by Rome. Rome covered all of this. And, it, and it, was, it was neatly divided up. They had a very, a very developed system of administration. And here's what, this, this area right here, you see that? It says Cilicia. Cilicia is a province where Tarsus is. Tarsus is the hometown of Paul. So Paul was a Roman citizen born in the province of Cilicia. 
What's interesting, though, is that the first two places that Barnabas and Saul go are to Cyprus and to the area close to Paul's hometown, home country. Now, that's interesting because Cyprus is Barnabas' home country. And after they leave Cyprus, they go to what is close to Paul's home country. Now, the Bible doesn't say directly why they did that, but what, what it is interesting that the first two places they go are, are places related to them directly, to them directly. It's almost like, I, I can't prove this, but it's almost like, it's almost like they prioritized taking the gospel to their own, own people, their own towns, their own areas first. Barnabas was from Cyprus, and that's where they went. Okay, so you see this. Press the right arrow there, Isaiah. So here's what you see here. They leave Antioch, and just about 16 miles away is a port city called Seleucia. They get on a boat, and this is the first time the gospel is found on a ship. Well, except in the Sea of Galilee, just as a note. But anyway, as a, as a missionary endeavor. And they go straight over to, to Salamis, and Salamis is on the east part of Cyprus, and Paphos is on the west side of Cyprus. Paphos is still, still in existence. It's a city, but Salamis is, is not as it, as it was in the Bible times. Now, here's what I want you to understand. The island of Cyprus, let me get to my notes because I, I wrote it down. The island of Cyprus is about, is about 138 miles from tip to tip. Okay, but they traveled not to the tip. They traveled from, uh, from Salamis to Paphos, which is about 89 miles as the crow flies. Okay, this whole island is, is about the size, a little, it's, a, it's about 43%, my calculations, larger than the state of Delaware. We're not, it's a ninth of South Carolina, one ninth of the state of South Carolina. So it's not a big, it's not a big uh, uh, island, but here's what I want you to see. As we read through here, notice we read about, we read about this man named Elymas in verse number, uh, verse number 6. And we read about Sergius Paulus in verse number 7. And that's all we read about. You notice that? They spent time, however long they spent, in this one, on this one island, which is a substantial place. You know, that's a lot of land. That's a lot of land. And all they had to report was about two people. And one of them was, some, was a child of the devil. Only thing they had to show for it that we know of was the conversion of this one Sergius Paulus. That's it. it, it that, that's interesting. In other words, what we need to remember is not everywhere that Paul and Barnabas went was an explosive, uh, fruitful kind of ministry like we read say in Ephesus or in Corinth or something like that. Sometimes they went to places that it, it wasn't really that way. But see, that's not mentioned. The Lord gives us the, mostly the highlights in the book of Acts. Listen, most of our lives, you know what most of our lives consist of? It consists of that space between the lines. That's why we can't, we can't live for the sensational all the time. We have to live for the, the slow, steady walk with the Lord. And then every once in a while, the Lord gives us a highlight, right? What we might call a highlight. In a missionary, we call a prayer, prayer letter material, right? 
the, the Lord gives us those kinds of things that happen. Maybe somebody we get to witness to, somebody gets saved, somebody, you know, some big thing that happens in our life. But most of our life is between the lines. It's normal, common, maybe even we might say uneventful. You know, we think about the times we've gone out evangelizing here recently. You know, we've had conversations here and there, but really, was it, was it tremendous? Was it tremendous? Was it thrilling? It was just, it was just, we were just, I, I say plodding along, but I don't mean to sound negative. It was just trying to be steadily faithful, right? And that's what most of the Christian life is. That's what their ministry was. And remember, this is the first place they went. You know, they were probably excited. They get on the ship, they're going to Cyprus, and they're going to do something. You know, Barnabas is probably excited, going, probably went to his hometown, wherever that was, on Cyprus. And he went there, and you know what? Nothing happened, really. It sort of relates to what I said this morning. Very little fruit. And what's more is their first effort to take the gospel to another area, another land, another, another province. You know what the first area was? The first, the first real stop was met with the devil. In other words, it's, it's like the devil was trying to stop them from the start. In other words, trying to withstand them from the very beginning to stop the, the work right there. You know, I've experienced that. I've experienced that in my life where I set out to do something and the first thing I came to was opposition. First thing I came to was difficulty. You see, if, if we set out to do the will of God and we don't have at least some tenacity, we are going to be, we're, we are going to be stopped in doing the work of the Lord if we do not have some tenacity to get through that initial resistance. That's just the nature of it because we do have an enemy. We do have an enemy. There was a single individual converted. Now, let's look at a few verses here. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Acts 4.36 says that he was from Cyprus. Uh, let's look down at verse number 5. The Bible says they were at Salamis. They preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, we're going to see that, that Paul, Paul and Barnabas, their method, and Paul's method later is always going to be to go to the synagogue and the places that have synagogues as their first order of business. And they had also John to their minister. Now, we'll see more about John later, but John, his surname, last name we would say, is Mark. This is the man who wrote the book of Mark. He is, he is the nephew of Barnabas. Can you hit, get the screen back on for me, son? That's fine. He's the nephew of Barnabas. So he's related to Barnabas. Now, we're also going to see that in verse number 14, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 13, the end of verse 13, the Bible says, and John departed from them, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So John, after they leave Crete, they land in uh, Pamphylia, then John's going to go home. All right? And Paul is not going to take that well. Paul is going to mark, pardon the pun, Brother Ari, he is going to mark John Mark. And it's going to be a long time before he wins Paul's confidence again. He will. But John, John Mark at this point faltered. He faltered. Why? Who, who, who knows why? But that tenacity that they had, apparently John Mark did not quite have it like 
Barnabas and Saul. But you know, what's interesting is in chapter 13, the beginning first three verses, it was not John Mark who was sent. It was Barnabas and Saul. There is, uh, that, that's notable because he is the one who, who, uh, who decides that he wants to come back home after a, a little bit of time. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> excuse me. Now I want to give you a little, a little, uh, little bit of history about verse number 7. Go back to the first one. Hit the left arrow twice. Twice. There we go. All right. That's not what I'm looking for. Verse 7 says this. Talking about Elymas, it says, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Now, Sergius Paulus is a man. <clears throat> he's a Roman official. The, the, ver, the verse says, uses the word deputy, okay? Now, what is a deputy? I know immediately, you know, you probably went back to the Westerns, you know, right? You know, deputize, how Andy always deputized, or Barney always deputized somebody when he couldn't be there, you know. A deputy is someone who has authority that is, uh, that is given to him, uh, the word, I'm, I'm, I lost the word, Somebody help me. I can't think of the word. Delegated. Thank you. The word deputize means to, to delegate, to represent. So, so basically, someone has authority, has legitimate, what we might call constituted authority, and he gives that authority, delegates that authority to somebody else in his absence. That's a deputy. Okay? Here's what I want you to understand about, about Sergius Paulus. The Bible, in this case, refers to him as a deputy. Now, here's what's, what's interesting about, about the writer, Luke, here, is how accurate he is to describe, to describe Sergius Paulus and his role in the, Roman, in, in the Roman government. Now, if, if I was referring to, the, to the, 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 the leader, the executive leader of any state in the United States, what would I call him? Huh? I would call him a governor. Now, if I referred to him as a president, as in, since you used that word, if I referred to, say, that, that, that person in, say, Virginia, and I called him a president, what's the, who's the governor of Virginia? Northam, okay. So if I was to say President Northam, Glenn Youngkin, yeah, Northam's the, the old one. He's out of here. Anyway, Glenn, let Glenn Youngkin. So if I was to look at the, 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 the governor of Virginia and I was to call him President Youngkin, what would that say about me? No? That's what I'm getting at. I'm not familiar with the right terms. You know that? You, you understand that? If I was to call the president, President Biden, if I was to call him Prime Minister Biden... That would be weird, right? We would, if you heard that, you'd be like, all right, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> right? But if I was to call, say, the, the prime minister of Cambodia, if I was to call him president, that would be unusual because that's not what he is. That's not what he's called. This is why it's important that the writer of Luke be exact about what he calls him, and he is. He is. Now, let me give you a little bit of background with this. He uses the exact Exactly, exact correct term historically for, for this man. 
uh, Sergius Paulus. And remember, Sergius Paulus is a man who his name appears in different uh, inscriptions in, in the Roman, in different monuments in the Roman Empire, uh, in at least two different places. So it's, it's an, he's an interesting person. Now, here's the way this worked. Whenever, whenever uh, Caesar Augustus took over the Roman Empire, took over, he became the emperor, whereas before it was a, it was a, it was a they had a senate that was, the, it was a republic. Whenever Caesar Augustus took it over and he became the emperor, all right, all the provinces of Rome were divided into two classes. They were, they were given, the, the, the provinces were divided by either they were under the senate, which was the representatives, or it was, it was put under the emperor directly, Okay. In all the provinces that had that, that the Senate was over, they named a consul. That was the head of that province, the consul. And all the provinces that the emperor controlled or had direct power over that were called his provinces, he put, he had a praetor over them. All right, those are two different terms. It's like president and prime minister, it's like governor, administrator. You don't use them. You don't mix the terms. They have similar meanings, but, you know, they're titles. You don't mix them. Okay, everybody with me? Now, this man, Sergius Paulus, in English the word is deputy, but in Greek the word used is the word... Where'd my laser go? In Greek the word used is proconsul. This man, his title was a proconsul. Now, what is that? Okay. Now, remember, in the provinces that the emperor had, you had he had a praetor, but he had, also had a propraetor. Now, they, they, mean, they mean the same thing. Here's, here's what it means. A proconsul is a deputy. <laughs> Gasp, right? Everybody's surprised. A proconsul is a consul, is a person that the consul has deputized to act in his behalf. That's all it means. We would call it a governor. It's like a, like a deputy governor. So this man was a, Sergius Paulus was a proconsul. Now here's the problem. Does ever, is everybody following me? So by looking at this, you would say Crete, which it's uh, not Crete. I keep on saying Crete. Cyprus was a, a Roman province, okay? So by looking at this, according to what I just said, Cyprus should have been a province of the Senate, right? Because there was a proconsul. That's the term used, but it wasn't. Cyprus was a province of the emperor. The emperor had direct control over this. So technically, it should have a praetor and a propraetor, but it didn't, sorry. But it didn't. The word used is proconsul. Now, if you look at that on the surface, you'd be like, well, Luke don't know what he's talking about, you know, you know, from a historical perspective. But listen to this. I read this in one of the commentaries I have. Okay, at the same time, this a Roman historian, a Roman figure said, he informs us that Cyprus was retained by the emperor for himself. That's what I just said, right? And the title of, of the governor, therefore, would naturally have been not proconsul as here, but pro, propraetor, right here. But here's the, here's the little zinger, this inter, an interesting historical note. 
that shows how accurate Luke is and, and knows what he's talking about. It says this, Yet, it, it, it so happens that this same man, Dio Cassius, has stated that the reason why the title proconsul was given to the governor of Cyprus in the, was the fa- in the fact that he mentions that, quote, Augustus restored, Augustus was the emperor, restored Cyprus to the Senate, remember, boom to boom, in exchange for another district of the empire. So what happened is it was originally had a had a propraetor, had a praetor, but originally when they divided it up, but but since then the emperor had given it back to the Senate in exchange for another area of Rome, and so now it had a proconsul. Sergius Paulus is that man. You notice Luke uses the exact term to describe his title. And of course, in English, this is, a, this is actually borrowed. In, in English, we don't really have that. So the word that's translated is the word deputy, which is exactly what that means. An interesting little tidbit of history where the scripture is just exactly... In other words, what, you know what it tells us? It tells us that the person, from a human perspective now, the person who wrote Acts was there and knew exactly what he was talking about knew exactly what he was talking about. Just like if you were to come into Greenville and you were to say, oh yeah, well the governor of Greenville said this and that and the other. It's like, the what? The governor of Greenville? You know, or the city administrator. You can't say that. You, have to, you would have to live there and know the terms and know which one was in use in that place. And that's exactly what Luke does. Those, those historical things are, are, a, are, a, str- are a strong indicator that contrary to what the, uh, what the uh, naysayers and unbelievers in the Scripture, they, they want to say Acts was, wasn't written at the time by Luke and all those kinds of things, that those kinds of things are things that are interesting that, that the more history, the historical documents and things that are unearthed and researched, the more we see, oh yeah, they were right along. It was just, it, it was just there was a bunch of people who didn't want it to, to be so. All right, let's keep going here. Isaiah, you can, uh, you can, well, let me just go ahead and do it. All right. Let's look at a few more things before we finish. Look at verse number six. Rather, let's go down to verse number eight, rather. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. Notice, Paul is filled with the Holy Ghost. That means, as we've already studied before, that means that he is under the direct control of God's Spirit. Right? That means what he's doing is what God is leading him to do. Okay? Okay? He set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Now we met another sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Does anybody remember his name? Say again. Simon, who's also a sorcerer. 
Now, the difference is Simon wasn't, didn't withstand. Remember, he had that interaction with Peter, and he, Peter rebuked him because he was, you know, he was wanting to use the gift of the Spirit of God and the miracles as a way to make money. And Peter rebuked him. But this, this man's doing something different. He is taking his place as, as, a, as someone who is set as an opposer of the gospel. He is an opposer of the gospel. Now, let me, let me explain to you why this matters. Is that not everyone we meet, even if they don't believe the gospel, even if they're unbelievers, and even if they don't like what we say, that doesn't make them someone who has set themselves as an enemy of the gospel. There's a difference. Some people are, are opposed to us because they love their sin, right? You know, they're living with their girlfriend and they're, you know, drinking every Friday night, Saturday night, and they, you know, they just want to live in sin and so they don't have any time for us and you get out of here, get out of here. I don't, I don't want to hear anything about that. That's not an enemy of the gospel. That's just someone who, who's in love with sin. You know, others might mock us, might mock the gospel because they're under the influence and, uh, you know, they're, they're hypnotized by the love of the world. That's also not an enemy of the gospel. The world persecutes people like, like us. That's, that's not unusual. This is a special class. This is a group of people who knowingly, willfully, set themselves against the gospel. They want to stop it. They don't, they don't just want you to go away so that they can continue to sin. They actually want you to go away and nobody hear what you have to say. They do not want the gospel to be heard at all. This is an enemy of the gospel. All right? This is a, this is a whole other class of people. And it's important for us to understand because the way we deal with them is different. The way we deal with them is different. Now, you notice here that in verse number 10, he says, uh, Paul says to this man, Elymas, he says, O full of all subtlety and all mischief. He says, Wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? So what, you know, there, there are a number of ways that the devil offers resistance and opposition to the gospel. You think of the ways that we, we've seen in the Scripture. Even in the book of Acts, how has the devil resisted the gospel? How has he done that? Anybody want to give me, an, give me one? There's, there's actually three, at least three. We've, we've looked at one of them in a lot of detail. We'll see one tonight, and then later on we're going to see another one. What's, what's the primary way the devil has opposed the church through the book of Acts up to this point? Anybody want to guess? Ben, you know. I bet you know. Correct. Ben is right. Persecution. What I call the first way that, that the devil seeks to hinder or oppose the gospel is what I call brute force opposition. That is persecution and threats. And sometimes that leads to, you know, Saul was a part of that. This is not that. There is one other one, which is the third one we'll see later in Acts. But the devil sometimes seeks to plant spies within the church. In other words, to bring about corruption within the church. There are people that sneak in to corrupt the, the body, the doctrine, and, and the morality, and all those things from, with, from inside. That's one way the devil does it. So you have two. What's this? This is different. 
This is by perversion of the truth, by the use of subtlety. Subtlety. He uses the word, O full of all subtlety. So in this case, how did Elymas oppose the gospel? How did he, as an enemy of the gospel, do his work? He did it by deception. He did it by deception. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, And the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The first appearance of the devil that we see in the Bible, we see him associated with not brute force persecution, not slipping in among God's people. We see him trying to deceive, listen, by perverting and distorting the truth, by misrepresenting, misusing, and twisting the truth. Now, here's why, here's why this is so nefarious. I know, it means the devil, right? Nefarious. Here's why it's so deceptive. In this method of deception, the devil has to start with the truth to do it. In other words, he, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel. They're sharing the truth with this Sergius Paulus. They're trying to tell people about Jesus. And the devil is taking that truth. And he's altering it. You see? This is why this is so nefarious. Just like in Genesis chapter, chapter 3, what did the devil start with? You know what he started with? He started with the command of God. He says, what's the famous line? Somebody help me. Yea, hath God said. He couldn't say that unless God had said, and he had. And he took it, and he twisted it. He took it, and he distorted it to mean something God did not intend. He distorted it into something that God did not say. But under color, under the guise of the Word of God. So he took the Word of God in its pure form, altered it and twisted it, perverted it, we would say, and then gave it to someone in a distorted form and used that to teach something that God did not teach. This is one of the three, one of the primary three ways that the devil seeks to oppose the gospel. He takes the gospel in its pure form and distorts it and twists it. And that's what's happening here. So if you got in your mind here that, and remember, the devil is not directly, I say, he's not personally involved in this. This man was absolutely a child of the devil, but he's not, there's nothing in the text that indicates he was possessed of the devil. So this is a guy doing this, a man who has submitted himself to the devil, who has decided and made a conscious decision to set himself as an enemy of the gospel. He decided and on purpose figured out a way that he was going to take what Paul and Barnabas were saying and twist it so that the deputy would be turned away. That's what's going on here. Misrepresenting the truth. Misrepresenting the truth. Look at Romans chapter 3, if you would, since we're already this close. I want to give you an example of this in, in practice. Romans 3, one little verse, it might be something we overlook, but look at chapter 3, 
and verse number 5. It says this, But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I judged as a sinner? And not rather, now listen to this carefully, look at verse 8. And not, and not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say. Now here's, pause that a second. Paul is saying that what he's about to say is not what he says, but what others say that he says. Okay? Listen to how they distort Paul's message of grace. Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. So what Paul is preaching is a gospel of grace. He's preaching that no matter how much sin a person has, the more sin, is, however high sin might pile, the grace of God will be above that. That's what he's preaching. And what they're doing is they're taking that and say, well, then let's just send, it, send, send to our heart's content. After all, it's grace, right? The more sin, the more grace. So let's just send it up. Let's just throw ourselves at sin. This is, does this sound a little bit familiar? Because this is also something that is prevalent in our day. For those of us that believe we're saved by faith in Christ, by grace through faith. We don't believe, the, no, no. Was more important than that. The Bible says plainly, the Bible does not teach that a person is saved by their good works. And so some people retort to us and they say, well, if you're just saved, you just got all you do is believe in Jesus, as if that's, you know, nothing. If all you got to do is believe in Jesus and, and you're just saved by grace and just God's good to you and He just saves you, then why not just go out and sin? How many of you have heard that argument before? You know what that is? That is a perversion of the gospel. That is an argument of the devil. You know what they're saying? They're saying either, either you believe that you're saved by your good works or you believe that because you're saved by grace, you can sin all you want. That's what that argument teaches. That argument uses the truths of the gospel to, to, to argue either you're saved by works, which is false, or you can just throw yourself at sin. And you know what? Some people have done that. Well, I can, you know, I can always ask God for forgiveness later, so you know, it don't really matter. They might not say that, but that's the way they live. Now, we, you, you might hear that and you're like, who would ever say that? People do it all the time. They use the grace of God as a license to sin. That is a demonic doctrine. That is totally contrary to Scripture. Rather, we know Titus says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation teaches us what? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So we know that God, God doesn't teach that. But we also know that He teaches we're saved by grace. You see, we took something that's right and good and twisted it to teach something false. And you know what? A lot of the cults do that because they want to teach that we're saved by good works. 
And so they'll, they, they'll make that argument to try to attract you back to this to agree with them that you have to follow whatever rules and laws that they or their religion has laid out. You see, it's twisted. It's perverted. If you would look at Galatians chapter 1, we'll see another, not an example of that, but we'll see Paul faced it in, in a number of different ways. Galatians 1 and verse 7, or verse 6 for context, says this, I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him that called you un, into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Verse 7, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would, what's the next word? Pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, you can't pervert something unless you have the genuine article to begin, right? You can't counterfeit a dollar unless you have a dollar. Well, that's, what, that's what's happening. They take the gospel, they twist it to teach something else, and they pervert it. You see what I'm saying? This is what Elymas was doing. Now, go back to Acts, 10, Acts 13, if you would. And in verse 10, the Bible says this. Before I read this, let me, uh, um, James, can you get Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, 38? Ari, can you get John 8, 44? Who else can I get to help me? Ben, can you get 1 John 3, 10? So James, Matthew 13, 38. Um, Ari, John 8, 44. And Ben, 1 John 3, 10. All right. Now I'm going to read verse 10 back in Acts 13. And he said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil. Now, I've heard people say, if you're not a child of God, you're a child of the devil. Well, let's look at the Bible on that. Okay? Because child of, that's a pretty serious accusation to say you're a child of the devil. Okay? All right, give me Matthew there, James. Read it nice and loud for us. All right, this is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Now, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, what's happening? An enemy is sowing the tares into the, the field, which has the wheat. He's sowing that into the uh, the field, so he's taking the children of the the children of the wicked one, which is how it's how the Lord interprets it, and he's sowing it into the good wheat. So he's corrupting. In other words, he's trying to ruin the crop. That's what is referred to as a child of the devil. This is not some you know just kind of a a a child a, a person who is just loves sin and wants to sin. No, this is a the devil is intentionally trying to destroy the work of God. All right? Let's see uh, John 8, 44 there, Ari. So the Lord says to those Jews, now remember, in the verse, uh, there's a verse above it in verse 40, and then in verse 59 after it, those Jews want to kill Jesus. They want to kill him. And in verse 59, they're actually taking up stones to stone Christ. And so they are in direct, intentional opposition to Jesus. 
These aren't just people that want, again, these aren't just people that want to sin. They want to kill him. Okay? The Lord says, those Jews were children of the devil. Okay? All right, 1 John chapter uh, 3, verse 10, and verse 12, if you would. All right, you see that? In that chapter, he's talking about the children of, the, of God and the children of the devil. Notice Cain being a representative of the child of the devil is killing <laughs> the one who represents the child of God, which is Abel. What I want you to see is the child of the devil is not just a regular old sinner. The child of the devil is someone who sets themselves as an enemy of the gospel, who seeks to destroy the work of God on purpose. You see... In the scripture, you would, uh, uh, an average, a regular old sinner, we might call run-of-the-mill, you know, factory sinner, would be called a child of wrath. That's what the scripture describes him as, but not a child of the devil. And the way we deal with people like that is different. How did Paul deal with this man? Let, before we get to that, let me, let me say this. So you have this deception. You have this subtlety where... This man, Elymas, is taking what Paul says and he's twisting it, he's altering it. We don't know exactly how, but he's twisting it, he's altering it, he's trying to present it in such a way that that's, he's hiding his motives, right? I'm going to read you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, if you would turn there, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2. When we present the gospel, you'll notice... It is way different than, say, a Jehovah's Witness. You know why? Because when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they are constantly trying to hide what they really want to get at. How many of you have ever talked to Jehovah's Witness and you got that impression immediately? They're always trying to hide. They'll say, do you want to have a Bible study and not telling you they have a different Bible? Do you want to study about Jesus not knowing they have a different Jesus? The Mormons do the same thing. They're constantly trying to hide what they believe and where they're going. That is a red flag that you're dealing with a deceiver. That is not the way we give the gospel to people. You know what we are? An open book. 2 Corinthians 4.2, look what it says. Verse 1 says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. All right, you see that? The Lord plainly forbids any kind of hiding of our motives or where we're going in the conversation or what we're trying to get people to do or see. We're not hiding anything. That is what, that's what the devil does. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what we're doing? We're laying the truth out openly. We're not hiding where we're going. We're not hiding what we believe. We're not hiding what we want them to do when we give the gospel to people. We're saying this is the truth and we're commending it to their conscience. You know, when you're trying to deceive someone, you're not commending it to their conscience. In other words, you're commending to someone's conscience is, is giving it over to them to decide if it's good or bad, right or wrong. That's what that means. But they can't do that in Jehovah's Witness. They want to hide it from us. <laughs> 
They can't let us decide because they're afraid. Uh, for instance, in the case of Mormons, they're afraid that if we believe that God, has, God is, was once a man and he has his own planet, if we believe in their religion, then we can become gods and have our own planets. That's exactly what Mormonism teaches. If they say that plainly, then people's consciences might be like, eh, nah, I don't think so. So they hide it. That's not what we do. We give the gospel plainly. We're an open book. If they don't believe it, that's on them. We want them to. We give it over to their conscience. And that is the only way. We have renounced anything else, you see. We just tell it plainly. You know, there's a lot of liberty in that. Not everybody's going to like it or believe it. But at least I'm not trying to hide my lies, right? Now, as we get close to the end here, How does Paul deal with this man? So I've tried to categorize different, different types of opposition, different types of people. I've talked about the run-of-the-mill mill factory-made sinner, right? Someone who's in love with their sin, who, likes, who loves the world and doesn't want anybody to oppose it or say no. Tell them nay, right? That's one way. The way the Lord tells us to deal with those people is to love them. Is to love them. Show them overcome evil with good. But this is not the way Paul deals with this. Because this is different. You're dealing with someone who's not just in love with sin, but someone who is taking God's property, the gospel, and is on purpose twisting it. To Listen now, just like this morning, to take the seed out of someone's heart. The Lord says, uh, the, the example we see here, remember, remember, we know it's right because of Paul's being filled with the Holy Ghost. He wasn't just angry. <laughs> How did he deal with it? Direct confrontation. Direct confrontation. This is why it's important to understand the opposition and understand why people are doing what they're doing. Are they, are they intentional deceivers using subtlety to pervert the gospel? Or are they just in love with their sin? Because the way you deal with them is different. When the opposition is directly from Satan, like this, it has to be confronted as such, as opposed to opposition maybe from the world or someone in the, just walking in the flesh. In other words, we are not to deal gently with these people, with the person who's distorting the gospel. We're not to deal gently. That doesn't mean we harm them physically. That's not what I'm saying at all. But we're not, we, don't, we don't seek to just be nice to them. You know, there's a, there's a, a, an effort among modern Christianity to always be nice to everybody at all times. And we should be nice and show kindness to people, but this is an exception. This is an exception, biblically speaking, when the Lord says, you don't let them in your house and you don't bid them Godspeed, <laughs> right? That's what the Bible says. Well, that's mean. I know <laughs> the Lord doesn't want us to be nice to people who are perverting the gospel. You say, sorry, get out of here. You're, have you, listen, have you ever talked to someone who is involved with peddling the gospel and said, you are part of a cult and you are leading people to hell? Have you ever done that? I've done that. And I, you know what? I do it and I feel a little bit bad about it, <laughs> just to be honest with you. But that's, that's the way the Lord has said to do it, direct confrontation. Last verse I want to look at is Titus chapter number 1. The Lord actually gives us very plain direction in this way. Titus 1. 
because he mentions some deceivers uh, in Titus in, in uh, on Crete, which is where Titus was, not Cyprus. He was on Crete. Verse number, verse number, uh, verse number nine says this: holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now listen to verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers. Okay, now you're, a deceiver is not just some random sinner. This is someone who is distorting the truth. Listen to what he says. Especially they have the circumcision. So he's saying the Jews are really bad about this. And they, almost throughout the whole book of Acts, it's not until the very end that you see, and even up until the very end, the primary opposer of Paul is the Jews. The Jews. His own people who were supposed to, you know, know the Bible and all those things. It was the Jews. He says here, they of the circumcision are the deceivers. He says this, notice, how do you deal with them? Whose mouths must be stopped. See that? Is that being nice, loving them to Jesus? No, <laughs> it's not. It's dealing with the devil as the devil. Again, we're not talking about physical violence here, but we're, not, we're talking about we're, this is not the way you would deal with just an average person who loves sin. Who subvert whole houses, teaching things that which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. The Lord says, look, they need to be rebuked. You need to do what's necessary to stop their message. And what did Paul do? That's exactly what he did. Now, I, if you can strike someone with temporary blindness in order to get them to be quiet, <laughs> well, you have at. But, I mean, I can't do that. At least, not. I haven't done it yet. But the idea is that we recognize that we're not trying to win them. We're trying to shut them up. You see what I'm saying? That's different. Because they're perverting the gospel. And the gospel, listen, the gospel's ours. You know what I'm saying? By that, the gospel's ours. It's not theirs to twist. It's ours. And we need to be protective of it. And we need to respond in the right way. And this gives us uh, an example that we can follow with Paul. Let's pray.